Minor Feelings, an Asian American Reckoning by Kathy Park Hong, walks us through her experiences of racial discrimination throughout her life. Hong explores identity, race, and how the United States continues to disregard its role in the erasure and discrimination of Asian Americans. As we conclude our series in honor of AAPI Heritage Month, we welcome back sociologist Dr. Ginger to discuss all our feelings on minor feelings. I'm Denny. And I'm Veronica. Stay with us in this episode of the Vulgar Jesus Podcast. Support for this podcast comes from Park Ave CDs, purveyors of new and used vinyl and CDs, clever gifts, books, and more. This year, Park Ave CDs celebrates 37 years. They'll also be celebrating Record Store Day 2021 on June 12th and July 17th. Visit in-store or online at parkavcds.com for details. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzy'sbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. Welcome back. To another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. I am uh, your co-host, Veronica, joined with the lovely Denny. Hello, welcome. Welcome to our space. And uh, we have a, a reoccurring guest on the show. The one, the only, Dr. G, Miss <laughs> Ginger. Thank you so much for coming back onto our show. Uh, she was on here earlier uh, in our Brown and Black series, and we were talking about the um, the the incident that happened over in Atlanta, the Terrorist Act, and uh, other things that have been taking place um, this past year in regards to um, the racism t- in within the towards the Asian American community. And we are so happy to have her back on to talk about our nonfiction pick for the month of April and May. We're doubling up, ladies and gentlemen. If you haven't gotten on, get on this train. It's a good one this year. And uh, we started our nonfiction. Is this our first nonfiction book? I think so. We started it with our anniversary, which was on you know, last month in April, mm-hmm. and since we knew that May is Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month, Ooh. so many people, so many people involved in that <laughs> one month. <laughs> so much to cover in those so much, 30 days. So many countries. Um, <laughs> we are talking about Minor Feelings, an Asian American Reckoning by Kathy Park Hong. Yes, um, Kathy Park Hong is a poet and um, an author, and this book was, it was basically like a memoir mixed with um, a history lesson, 
because a lot of people just don't know about what Asian people have had to endure and continue to do, endure here in the United States. And um, she just lays it out so well for us. And so we chose to go with this book and branch it out over two months. And um, so that's why we have uh, Dr. Ginger on to uh, uh -huh. be with us as we talk about this book. Had you read this book before or did you read along with us? Yes, thank you so much for having me on. I am so excited to talk to you both generally because you're so fun, but also I'm so excited to talk about minor feelings. Yeah, um, when I heard about it and was getting buzzed last year, mm -hmm. I um, reached out to my staff groups and I was like, hey, Asian people, I would really <laughs> love to talk about this with you all. So I read it. I just, this is probably the fourth time I've read the book again. And I listened to it on Audible and I, I read it visually also, um, but it has really made me feel seen. Mm -hmm. um, and I really appreciate the way that Kathy Park Hong talks about some of the different experiences and gives us some frameworks to understand um, some of the things that Asian Americans go through or people who are not white in the United States, what we go through. Mm -hmm. So I think we should just start it off with the title. I know, Denny, you talked about earlier that you wanted to talk about just the title in itself, Minor Feelings. So what are your feelings about Minor Feelings? <laughs> mm -hmm. That it was actually like, you know, she she was right that we were made to feel that those those kind of feelings or that feeling of racism doesn't really exist, that it's all in our head. Because as a product of like, me colonialism and like whitewashing like my all throughout my life i'm an immigrant so when i came to the united states i was a full-blown adult i was 21 so when i came here i didn't i didn't know shit what i studied in the philippines was asian history asian history is very different from like american history and even american history is like the narratives are not straight even up to this day so going, you know, going back to, you know, all of that preface, like, you know, that was like the intro to my, to my life here. I, in the beginning, I wasn't identifying as Asian American. I was just identifying I'm Filipino. I'm a none of the above. Cause I was, I didn't, I didn't feel it. it to me, it was not legitimate that I call myself Asian American because I didn't feel like the experiences of like Asian Americans in America. But when I immigrated and I started building my life here in this country asked me to be a citizen of the United States to revoke my Filipino-ness, like my Filipino citizenship, I had to like reevaluate and basically study this country. Mm -hmm. I'm like, why are you guys so horrible? Um, but going back to like minor feelings is like that's when that's when this the feeling started of like oh i guess we are not important i guess we're just like background we're the workers worker we're the worker beast of this like capitalist country and then we can we were we are identified as like the like you know the smart one the nerds because they need they need people to work for them mm. and then those feelings kind of like you know once once that like like you said that parasite is in your head it's very hard to remove because then there's like a concept of like well i don't want to disappoint my parents kind of deal 
compounded with like the racism of white America. So to me, like the minor feelings is not like really minor. It's a lot of like layers that I don't think we can talk about like in even like in a five hour podcast. Mm. Um, <laughs> but I'm hoping that Ginger can like elaborate on some of some of my points because like I'm just here like talking as like you know, um, an American of like maybe like ten years max, but with with that ten years, I know these feelings. I'm not crazy. These feelings are true, mm. valid, and needed to be said, heard, and needed to be expressed. Mm. Ginger, do you have any thoughts on on the title itself? Yeah, you know, I think um, Denny touched on a lot of little pieces um, that I'd like to come back to, too, because uh, I do think the book, first of all, is very accessible. It's super easy to read. It's not like this dense academic language. And uh, she writes in a very beautiful fashion. Um, being a poet, she has a way with words. And um, on page 55, she defines what minor feelings is to her. So I'll just read it so everyone knows. It's the racialized range of emotions that are negative, dysphoric, and therefore intelligentic, built from the sediments of everyday racial experience and the irritant of having one's perception of reality constantly questioned or dismissed. Mm. Minor feelings arise, for instance, upon hearing a slight, knowing it's racial, and being told, oh, that's all in your head. Yep. So I do think there's a lot of language around like how black Americans experience racism for obvious reasons, because of history in the United States and um, just the way that people have already wrote about it for hundreds of years. Um, but I don't think there's a lot of language for Asian Americans and how we feel. Uh, definitely not, not a lot that's out there and easily accessible that people have been using for um, in the popular in the popular rhetoric and discourse. So I appreciate that she names this, and it's not just a term for Asian Americans. It's for anybody that has these racialized emotions and is basically gaslit on like what you're feeling. So that's that's how I felt about minor feelings. And really reading the book, I was just like. I mean, there were times I had to put it down. It was too yeah. intense for me emotionally true. because it was like just speaking right to me. Like I was like, damn, this is really intense. And this intergenerational trauma is just like, you know, coming and flooding over me. So um, I, I think she really hit a lot of, a lot of um, experiences and put words to that and language to things that I've felt before for sure. When when her book uh her paper when her book went into paperback form um I think this was like maybe last month or so she sat down with a writer named Kiese Lehman um who is uh a very prolific and amazing writer and to talk about this book. And um so the first thing that he asked was you know, why did she name it Minor Feelings? But it was specifically the part where it was an Asian American reckoning. Why did she choose to go with that language? And for her, you know, she chose to use that word, I think, by not by choice, because she was like, I really find that word to be, I 
I'm paraphrasing her conversation, but I felt like she said that she found that word to be a little bit harsh um, in a way of that's not what she wanted to choose, but that's what she realized that that was something that was what was happening Mm -hmm. because she was having to reckon with who she was in this country and what all that meant to her um, and what those what the country thought it should mean to for her to be an Asian person in America. And um, she said that this book in particular, you know, she probably, she says that I am a poet first. Mm-hmm. And so when mm-hmm. I sat down to write, all of a sudden I noticed that I was writing all of these things that I had not really, you know, I guess dealt with in, in this particular way. And before I knew it, I had a, a, a memoir. And um, so, like I said, this one, it really lays out a good foundation to to really begin to pick apart what has been happening in this country since it's it started. Um, so one thing, the book starts off with her dealing with, she's having a, a mental moment. She's going into depression. Um, she lets us know that she has... Um, an eye spasm, um, a tick. Yeah, she has a tick. <laughs> uh, that she later on in in her, I guess in her college years, she's diagnosed uh, with having this this eye spasm. But it is triggered by you know not only caffeine but what she has been experiencing. But she doesn't quite understand why she's going through this depressive state. Um, and what I find it found interesting was first off the moment that she has with the therapist when she's trying to seek out help she wants to find somebody who looks like her and i know what that means she wanted a korean therapist she wanted yes. a korean specifically therapist. yeah and i understand that greatly because you know it's really hard trying to find a black therapist because you want somebody who can understand what you're saying and those uh, moments of being um uh, gas gaslighted gas gaslighted, mm-hmm. gaslighted. <laughs> those moments yeah. where you feel like you're going crazy that no one is believing what you're saying you want someone who knows who speaks mm-hmm. that language yeah. who has those words and say no girl you're not tripping mm-hmm. this has happened to me as well and she sits in this office after finding a korean therapist and she feels like this release that has happened of like, oh, I can finally let all of this go. And, you know, she's ready to book the next appointment. And the lady is like, I can't do this nope. anymore. Access denied. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she does not understand. And so the therapist telling her, oh, I'm not taking Aetna insurance anymore. Mm-hmm. And then she goes through all of these things where she's like well Edna says that they'll pay me back 80 percent she goes through mm-hmm. all this trying to convince the therapist to take her on and she refuses and it's not later until she has another therapist who explains to her that maybe it's a possibility that you hit too much home for her mm-hmm. and there were things that she hasn't dealt with yet that you were highlighting in that conversation mm-hmm. do you all have any thoughts on that particular moment I mean I being a medical professional, I understand when certain things that you see in your patient triggers you because you just want to care. So I've had this recent experience of like all my patients were just speaking Mandarin 
it was like the UN day and endoscopy suite. Okay. <laughs> so everybody was not speak. It was nobody spoke English that day. And everybody, everybody else but the patients were maybe freaking out because they're like, oh shit, now we don't know what to do because nobody can talk English. And I'm like, what's the big fucking deal? Like, we have medical interpreters, we have a machine, like, we're all humans. We get to communicate in some way, shape, or form. We're gonna be all right. But then I, like, I was just, I was so moved because, like, you would just see the, com like, the community of, like, um, like, people trying to help each other, like, in that moment. But yet, I was so kind of, like, triggered because, like, first, like, these people need more help than this. Like, you know... Mm doctors trying to explain to them what's going on i'm like no you need to come back here i'm gonna open the interpreter machine and you're gonna sit through this like 30 long ass conversation telling this lady that she's okay mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know that simple thing right there is kind of like you know hits too close to home because then i also have like my in-laws that are going through the same thing and it's kind of just like it's hard to care for people when you don't have anything else to give up mm -hmm. and that to me, like, so when the therapist was kind of like, I can't do this, I'm like, I think I know why, because it's, mm -hmm. it's the same narrative. And can you blame her? I can't. Like, I honestly can't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like um, for uh, a lot of my life, I did not grow up around Asian people. And I really didn't have a lot of, even in college, many Asian people around. Um, and I think I purposefully distanced myself from anyone who could have been a potential friend for a really long time because it was too close just to even be friends with an actual other Asian person. And this sounds ridiculous that I'm saying out loud right now, but my experience with my Asian family and the history I've had was so painful that I couldn't even have another like Asian person in my life because I'm like, okay, it's just going to trigger all, all those things. And I never really realized that until maybe a few years ago, honestly, it took me so long to really process like what that, what was I doing? And I would distance myself from anybody like mentally in my head. I'm like, okay, I'm not like them. Right. Like we're different. And so I would distance myself and like, try not to be friends with them or get too close because I was, um, you know, just so automatically triggered by uh, the, the relationship between my mother and her husband. And like, that would come up for me whenever I would see other Asian folks uh, subconsciously without me even thinking about it. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I can only imagine what it might be like if somebody is trying to pay you to do your professional job to but you're triggered by that that work you know and I totally understand I think Kathy really did not understand and she shows like <laughs> persistently calling and like really kind of going off the deep end a little bit. Um, so I don't think she really helped her case in that situation. <laughs> no. More of a push factor there than a pull. But yeah, um, it's a great question, Veronica. I really like that, that um, perspective because it allows us 
to see her in a very vulnerable state because even though, you know, maybe I would not have called the therapist and, and just, you know, asked all of these questions. I know I would have been asking those questions constantly in my head. Like, why mm-hmm. does this person not want to take care of me? You know, because when we see a therapist, we automatically align them like this is a medical professional. You know, you should not be able to say no. But that is a profession where they can be like, nope. I, I don't I don't want you as a patient. And so I could understand how in her mind she was trying to work that out of like, why doesn't this person want me? And I think that mm-hmm. that was probably something that she had been trying to work out a lot throughout her life. Mm-hmm. Um, as you see later on when she goes off to college and she has her friends and, and her having this very That's difficult, um, sometimes strange relationship um, with these women and not understanding... <sighs> where or understanding where her place was in relationship to them and it almost felt like as if she was chasing a friendship never like really seeing herself as a part of this friendship even mm-hmm. though it was a bit toxic <laughs> um oh, but she was yeah i, I, she was I think it's abusive it. and toxic yeah. <laughs> she was still in it right so you can see that this theme for her is carrying throughout the book of her trying to figure out like not only where am I in relationship to my friends, but where am I in this relationship to my country that I live in? Mm. Um, so um, there are two, I'm going to skip around, but I feel like they're connected. There are two points in the book in the very beginning and very end that are my absolute favorite. And it is when she's talking about Richard Pryor and um when she is talking about um Malcolm X and uh Yuri Kochiyama their relationship so in regards to Richard Pryor so there's a part in the book where she's dealing with this depressive state and her husband recommends like hey let's watch the stand-up and I guess she had never seen it before and she was blown away by how funny it was but also how he told his story and i really particularly like this part because she really talks about how language works and how um dealing with the memory of different parts of your life um how you can take those things and tell a story with it and um there's a a part in the book where he's um talking about having giving oral sex to a black woman and giving oral sex to a white woman and how their interactions are totally different where you have a woman a black woman who's a little bit more aggressive and telling him where he needs to go and where the white woman is like I'm okay I'll just finish with my vibrator and then him (laughs) wrapping up the joke and saying well I could not please either of these women no matter what it is that they told me and her saying that you know even though it is misogynistic in its in itself in the beginning that he chooses to be vulnerable when he sheds that machismo and showing Mm -hmm. like well i couldn't do what you know i thought i could do because Mm -hmm. if you were hear that joke from anyone else they would have probably just ended at what these women were asking for and made them the joke 
when it, he took himself and interjected himself into it and said, no, I actually am the joke. And him dealing with these moments. I loved how she decided that she was going to take his um, stand-up and break it down and sit there and transcribe every single part of this this stand-up. I'm, I'm, I've only heard of that once with a writer who was trying to learn how to write a book. Mm-hmm. And so he rewrote this book he found he just kept typing it out word for word word for word until he figured out how it was formatted and then wrote a book and then won a Pulitzer Prize so (laughs) for her to sit there and like pick everything apart and then try to take that and do the same thing that he has done uh she tried kind of trying to do her own jokes and not sure if it was landing (laughs) with other people (laughs) But her, it gave her this understanding of like, there's a way to deal with the pain that I have dealt with in a way where I am unfolding it, not only for my audience, but I'm also unfolding it um, for myself. Do y'all have any thoughts on um, her time on when she was talking about Richard Pryor? Yeah, I think um, that whole chapter for me, I felt like the the relationship between Asians and Blacks um, and the lack of community and interracial community, the isolation and that each community feels in relationship to others. Um, she talks about like feeling abandoned. Um, and I think for me, I kept on thinking about racial triangulation when she was talking about this black white binary and cause she's oh, another thing to add to what Veronica just said is um, Kathy Park Hong talks about as I was laughing at these jokes, I would go from laughing because I uh, sided with like the, the black narrative, or then I would start laughing because I sided with the white narrative. Like she, she was acknowledging that she didn't really know exactly where she belonged in these jokes And I kept on thinking of um, this theory by Claire Jean Kim, and it's called racial triangulation. And it lays out the relationship that Asians have to whites and blacks. Um, And it's, so I wish I could like show you what this looks like, (laughs) but uh, she's got this beautiful graph that kind of um, summarizes everything about this relationship. Basically you've got, two types of processes. So one is relative valorization. So like you can think of like moral authority, like relative valorization, like how um, valor as V-A-L-O-R, like um, being respected and um, how valid you might be. Mm -hmm. And so the relationship between the dominant group of whites valorizes the subordinate group Asians relative to blacks. So like, if you think of it as like a hierarchy, it's like whites think of Asians as higher than blacks. Um, But then, so on like the cultural or racial grounds, but then when you think of citizenship and belonging, you have the reverse. So the dominant group of whites constructs the subordinate group, Asian Americans as immutably foreign and unassimilable, unassimilable, unassimilable (laughs) to like can't assimilate um with whites on uh cultural and or racial grounds and so they ostracized they're ostracized from blacks because blacks are insiders in this relationship of uh citizenship Hmm. and of position to the united states they're more insiders than foreigners so 
I, I appreciate this because it makes it more complex than just like how much money you have or, um, you know, how much education you have, which is oftentimes the way more recently we've been conceptualized and pitted against each other or um, taxonomized. So um, the racial triangulation brings in like this uh, relative valorization and the citizenship um, in the field of racial positions and the way that she lays out the graph, it's like a triangle. So um, you could look it up if you really want to see what I'm talking about. But I appreciate that Kathy Park Hong throughout is talking about the way that the binary doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work for not just Asians, but for other people who aren't either white or black and maybe mixed people or Afro-Latinos, you know, like there's a lot of other folks that aren't neatly falling into those categories. So she kind of hits on that throughout. Um, I also want to, since I have the floor real quick, <laughs> I also want to highlight that I really appreciate throughout the book how the relationship between militarism, racism, and capitalism really underpins a lot of the things that she's talking about, mm -hmm. particularly that chapter um, called Stand Up with Richard Pryor, and even the first chapter, United, and then the last chapter. So she kind of like bookends it with these like larger themes of racism, capitalism, and imperialism, um, and militarism. Um, and that's kind of, Denny, like what you were talking about earlier with... Um, as a as an immigrant, we are meant to feel indebted, mm -hmm. like our first generation folks who are immigrants. That you know, you're just you should just be happy to be here, yep. and so you just got to take it. And then there's this great quote on page 185: If the if the indebted Asian immigrant thinks they owe their life to America, the child thinks they owe their livelihood to their parents for their mm -hmm. suffering. Asian immigrant children are accepting the burden of history and the duty to earn back reparations for the losses of their parents. And this is like, I think that last part was my words. <laughs> I'm looking at my notes. Um, so it's like you end up proving yourself through the workforce. And so you buy into capitalism like, okay, my parents were indebted because they owed their life to America just for being here. So me as a child, I have to like support my parents um, economically and so I have to make up for my value and prove my value through how much I can earn and how hard I can work and win in the capitalistic system which is set up for failure particularly for those who aren't white and who already don't have wealth so um I really appreciated like I felt like that really tied together a lot of pieces that she was weaving throughout the book um yeah what were your thoughts about like this indebtedness oh a lot because <laughs> it's kind of so me being as philip being filipino is kind of like another hybrid of being asian because like what kathy park hong is saying in this book like sometimes you know americans would associate asianness to like the facial features of like the monolid the yellow skin and right. the inability to like speak english straightly mm -hmm. so just those superficial things and then me coming in like this is kind of like oh you know like what are you like where are you from like all the questions why can you like why can you speak straight english and i'm just like you know that narrative of just trying to explain who am i like what what i'm about but you know speaking of the in 
you know, being in debt to America. That's a whole, like, history of, like, me growing up. Like, we were told ever since I was young, if not for the United States, and this was in in school, if not for the United States, saving the Philippines during World War II, we would still be, we would be poor, we would be in debt, we won't have the education that we would have right now because of the United States, we were freed. Mm. But mm-hmm. all of those things that I said, we are still in debt. We are mm-hmm. still poor. Our school system is still trash. You still have to pay an arm and a leg to be well educated in the Philippines. And the one per like the capitalistic system is still there. And the poor is poor, the rich is richer. So nothing has changed. So, you know, just to I'm not trying to be too sim- simplistic, but it's kind of like this the problems of like what they said they would like cure or what mm-hmm. they said we owed to them is still prevalent. So mm-hmm. for for me, like being indebted, it's kind of like, you know, and then finally, like, you know, my parents come in here and be like, oh, they finally had an opportunity for all of, you know, for our family to come here for the promise of that American dream and like that, um, I guess, economically being able to provide money not only for your family but all of your family your extended family back Mm -hmm. home that was Mm -hmm. the promise you know i'm not gonna lie we were able to do it you know because of like like ginger said like being in the workforce because that need to prove that you are worth something because you owe them your existence in this country Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so you are kind of like forced to not really explore yourself as a person, your Asianness in this country, but you are forced to prove to the capitalist white America that you are useful to them. Mm-hmm. Because from the very beginning, that has been ingrained towards you. So it's kind of like, oh, yeah, I owe my life to this country. And then whenever I would, you know, hear that from. Asian people, particularly, I'm speaking about like Filipinos. Um, a lot of Filipinos identify as other different things. We're very scared to accept that we're Filipino, we're brown, and we're Asian. Shout out to all of y'all, but you know who you are. But um, we identify as other things because we're so scared that we can't fulfill this, like, you know, the top tier Asian, you know, group and the that our parents are be like, oh, you should be grateful. This in this this being in debt to this country really plagues plagues mm-hmm. our blood. Mm-hmm. There's and- one part in that in that chapter that I, I definitely I highlighted. Um, it's on two hundred one for anyone that's following at home. Um, and <laughs> it's at the end where she's talking about her mom, which she rarely mentions in the book that's another conversation but she says almost weekly my mother said we moved here so i wouldn't have to suffer then she asks why do you make yourself suffer and i feel like in this particular part her mom is basically why can't you just get with the program and assimilate and just take it and just Mm -hmm. you know we don't need to go through all of the questions of the wins where's why's and how's Mm -hmm. like just live the life we're here, okay? But you can't just do that when you are 
when you're um, when you're awake to the things that is happening, what's being said and what's being done to you, it's really hard to um, to choose that because you literally are going to have to split yourself in two parts to mm-hmm. and take that one part that you're trying to hide and throw it away in the closet so that you you can be able to continue on with this life and ignore it but it's really it's really hard and i think what she has done um is definitely highlighted the taking the double consciousness narrative to an extent of showing where um asians are in relation to that um idea and how how they are having to like split themselves within being in this country, right? So I think that particular part was um, a really good uh, place to highlight what that indebtedness means, where I can understand like what that indebtedness means because um, we're always being told like we should be grateful that slavery is over. You know, it's in the past. <laughs> oh my God. It's in the past. It's time to forget. And, you know, like, or, you know, in re- in regard to this book, you know, like when you're talking about divorce, they have gone, over, gone on and you're, you know, she's talking about this moment where her father meets her um, college roommate's dad and mm. he's trying to figure out, you know, like, who are you or whatever. Mm. The, the questions that white people love to ask. They want to know mm-hmm. everything. And it's the first thing is, like, where are you from? He says, from Korea. Always. And he said, I fought in the Korean War. As if that's like, you telling me you went to Krispy Kreme. Like, it, it, mm-hmm. it's not the... It's not going to get the same effect of like, mm-hmm. oh, I visited that that country. Like, you were there in a time that was really, really horrible. And so what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to say, thank you so much? Yeah, exactly. You're supposed to bow down and kiss his feet. And like, you don't know how that person experienced the Korean War being a Korean person growing up there. Yeah, so. So, uh, you know, I I really felt that part of the the book. Um, When we look at her in in i guess in elementary school when she's learning english and so she has a whole chapter talking about language what were your thoughts on how how she was you know dealt with with her teacher but also in those moments where she became fascinated with what how people took the english language and used it in their own way and taking these words and you know saying like this is how i'm going to choose to use this word when i'm talking to people do you all have any thoughts on that i really liked um what i remember most from that chapter or what resonated with me was how she talked about like um was it was it cha the way cha wrote and was like use the period like a like a gun like at the end of a sentence it would and she used the period a lot so it it, you the way that she punctuated her work kind of expressed an emotion too and i had never really thought of it like that again i'm not really a poet i I appreciate music but like poetry's never really been something i've been drawn to but i feel like the way hong talks about it in the book it really it, it illuminates like oh yeah okay language is used in various ways for these things and that um bad english chapter i really 
you know, it made me think like using quote bad English as a transgressive act, like yeah. as a way to subvert the norm and decenter whiteness. She says like it forces the reader to slow down and listen to the listener, listen with their body. And I wonder, it makes me think like, I heard um, Jimmy O. Yang one time in an interview, he's an actor, um, he was talking about how people were criticizing him for playing a, um, i trying to remember what show it was, but he plays some kind of like tech nerd, you know, stereotypical like Asian guy thing on TV and he had to play with an accent, but he doesn't have an accent and they're like... Someone was asking him in a different interview, you know, thoughts on that. And he goes, well, like, I don't understand. Like, why can't the accent be sexy? Like, why does it always have to be negative? Can't we, can't we use it in a different way? Is there a way for us to perceive it differently than how we already perceive it? Like, could it be transgressive? And I really wonder about that. I feel like so much would have to change around the way we understand an accent. And like, I don't know how we could get there to a, another place, but that's because I, I lack a little bit of imagination. I mean, I'm sure there are so many ways that we could get there. Um, but that's what I remember when she was talking about, like you, the use of the English language, like using broken English or using bad English um, in different ways. What were your thoughts? Um, with, with a bad English. Cause like, um the the punctuation to me was a a big thing cuz like every asian every asian you know community speaks different and if you immerse yourself in a community that's their english that's their vernacular you know so it's kind of like understanding their vernacular is understanding the way of the people and mm. and also like I think it's also to me it's a form of like resistance of how not to you know conform mm -hmm. and to me it's a wonderful thing so when i hear like jokoi like trying to mm -hmm. um you know tell his jokes about his mom i'm like i'm eating all of that up because this is a guy that's actually like is not afraid to tell how his mom talked and he might be, like, making fun of, like, you know, how in the beginning, because I think, like, people were just so focused on how he was speaking. But mm -hmm. after a while, you divert your attention to, like, how how he delivers the joke and what is the meaning of the joke. So to me, I think it kind of it kind of goes around in that way. And I was just so I was very appreciative of, like, um, of that part. And also, maybe, like, because my mind is just kind of, like, zooming in and out. Um, that was one of the... When you were talking about the, the college part, mm -hmm. where they meet, like, um, the father or whoever, the, the one that fought in the, mm -hmm. like, the Korean War or whatever, I think that was the most irritating parts to me, for me, in the book. Because I Cause, because I think I get that a lot. Mm. They're like, oh, yeah, I was in the military base in the Philippines. And I'm like, mm. um, like, Ginger was like, so thank you? Like, <laughs> yeah. what, like, what do you want me to, like, how how do we move on from here? Mm -hmm. Right. Like, right. I was just, just that's just like my little bit of feelings right there. Mm -hmm. Just because I want to <laughs> share it. <laughs> I mean, I think it's, it's a flex, right? It's like, it's them 
kind of um, asserting their Americanness and their imperialistic yes. actions. Mm -hmm. and, and they probably don't understand it in that way, but it's like, oh, you as a, a yellow person or you as a brown person need to respect that I tried to fight for you in the way, and they think like, you know, the person, the military person is like, well, I went and I fought for you, but you don't know the other side of the story. Like you're in the American military. Like they, they give you this totally different narrative yep. than like a fair and balanced view, or they don't, they also don't give you the perspective of the natives. And, and Hong talks about a lot of different, um, like she talks about, was it Vietnam? and how Koreans actually aided the United States in Vietnam because yep. they felt indebted to, to the United States for helping with the, the Korean War. Um, but what ends up happening is the Koreans go over and the Vietnamese are like, oh, we're the same. You're mm -hmm. the same as me. Like, mm -hmm. oh, we're family. Like, okay. And the Koreans like just kill a bunch of Vietnamese, you know, really just leveling villages. Um, and I think for me, it was like, look how easy it is for people to adopt those imperialistic oh, yeah. uh, concepts and just like take them as their own and just be colonized themselves to be like, okay, well, this is what I need to do now because I am indebted or I want to be closer to Americanness. Mm -hmm. And it's just so awful. <laughs> like it, it was really like turning my stomach when I was reading those pieces about the military. Um, and I want to also say, it's just too good to let go this piece about language. She has a line in chapter two on page 48. She says, we need to stop spelling ourselves out in the alphabet given to us. And I was like, boom, yes. yes. Like it was, it's like her Audre Lorde, like, you know, yeah. the master's tools will never dismantle master's house. But because she's a writer, it makes so much sense that she, you know, uses it, the alphabet. I was like, yes, this is so right. And, and Denny, what you were saying about Joe Coy, I have so many feelings about broken English. And, you know, for a long time, like I was saying earlier, I would, um, when I would talk about my mom, I would always imitate her because for me, that's like distancing myself from her in a way that's like not a fair power balance. You know, like I'm telling the story in English and I'm imitating her in broken English. And so I'm clearly asserting this power dynamic that like she doesn't know what she's talking about or she's yeah. more ignorant because that accent, that's what it, re how it reads to a lot of Americans. Mm. And I... I used to do it a lot because I had such a fraught relationship with my mom. It like kind of helped me feel better when I would tell my stories about how ridiculous she was being. But then it started to make me uncomfortable. It was like a Dave Chappelle moment. You know, it was like that, that person's laughing a little too hard mm -hmm. at this joke. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, yeah. Like it did, it started to like not sit right with me. And like, I, so now today I still have kind of like, tension around like Joe Coy because I'm like okay for me like I feel like okay he's talking to me I get it I have the same experience but are there people that are laughing a little too hard in this audience that don't have this experience you know so I kind of feel like they torn were, they I think they would always will be um people that would be laughing out that would be laughing at us right that that is the joke to ourselves but I think it kind of helps to me, it kind of helps us 
to see ourselves, like not to take ourselves too seriously and maybe see mm. other things. So it's kind of like, okay, it's kind of like, because to me it was for, to me it was, um, I think very important to mention because my parents kind of, kind of, kind of saw a lot of things when they, we, when they moved here and they were able to kind of like, oh, okay, so racism does exist in America. And like, you know, like just little things picking up from like his jokes when I know if we talk to them about it, they won't, they won't respond to, but because it's mm. put in a platform that everybody can see it, it almost kind of was like normalized. I know it's kind of like very like cathartic to do. Um, but sometimes if you want to get through somebody like, you know, just because of that, you know, hard shell of like colonialism, that's very hard to break. So you mm -hmm. kind of have to see it in a different space. And I think mm -hmm. it kind of helped a little bit and it kind of opened up conversation and space too. And, yeah. you know, it makes you self-aware. It makes you hyper-aware of your existence. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes Asian people need to feel that in order in order to work through some of these issues that, oh, I can be validated. Oh, I think this is not right of them like laughing about me or like this is not right of like them talking about me this way. I can mm -hmm. joke to you about it if you're an Asian person and we identify in the same experiences, but not you because you're white, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, I think it kind of questioned relationships on, like, you know, the dynamics of, like, how do I deal with these people around me that is kind of, like, trying to, like, take over my existence. So I'm, I'm glad that y'all brought that up because it makes me think about the word audience because a lot of times when we have writers on and we're talking to them, you know, a question that we like to ask them is, who did you write this this book for? Mm -hmm. And, you know, mainly we're asking, like, like who is the audience that should be reading this, this book, right? And uh, I know she touches on it a bit in the book, but it is one of those things where you realize, like, if you can get into a place where you are not writing for the white gaze, mm -hmm. that you are truly writing for people who you know you can relate to on this subject, then you can get past and it can be like, you know, if you're enjoying like the part where she's talking about she loves to collect the bad English that she finds on the mm -hmm. internet and things like that. And you, were, you, Denny, were talking about how it is a sign of resistance. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a big... Basically, it's like a huge fuck you to um, the English language that has been used to colonize everybody. Mm -hmm. That it's been used in a way that if you are not speaking correctly, you're seen as less than. Mm -hmm. And if you want to be seen as somebody, you mm -hmm. have to speak in a certain way in a certain cadence you have to sound a specific way that is very in that way is white mm -hmm. in order for you to be seen and heard in this country and um i remember the actress i think her name is sophia vergara who's uh she was oh, yes. on martin family mm -hmm. i know she there's a there's a thing that she had talked about in an interview of mm -hmm. how she was being made fun of because of her not quite having a, a hold on the English language but she was like I can really tell you off in Spanish like I know what I'm saying I'm very smart in Spanish but when it comes out it doesn't sound like how I want it to, to sound right mm -hmm. um, 
She and, also talks about um, how she was doing, uh, like, what is it, coaching? She was going through vocal coaching mm -hmm. and, like, really yeah. trying to get rid of her accent mm -hmm. so that she could get more jobs. And she said it was difficult. She wasn't getting any jobs. Her auditions weren't going well. And then she's like, fuck it. I'm going to stop doing that. I'm just going to speak the way I speak. And then she started getting jobs. Yeah. So I, I think, like, for her, she she was like, I'm just going to resist and I'm just going to be myself. And it, like, really worked out for her. I think that was a, a nice story. But probably also has to do with the moment we were in. Like, at that point, people were looking for to hire people that had accents and they were okay with it as opposed to like maybe five years prior when she wasn't able mm -hmm. to get jobs. But yeah, sorry, interrupted you, but I really wanted oh, no, to throw that. No, you're good. Cause you, I mean, you hit on it. It's just kind of like, who will your audience be? Mm. And if you're doing it as a, as a form of resistance, if you're doing it because this is who you want to be your authentic self, I think mm. it serves you know, as a great thing, not only to yourself, but to the people who you are telling that story to as of, of like a, a place where they can say, like, I find my home in this moment. Like, I mm -hmm. recognize where I am. I see myself being um, reflected back to me. And it all makes sense. And to know that, like, there's somebody that is either going through the same thing, have experienced the same thing as me. And the people who are laughing too hard are, like you said, will always mm -hmm. laugh too hard. They're always going to yeah. be there. Um, but if we can get to a place where we can have an understanding of, um, you can just like go ahead and ignore those people and keep putting <laughs> out what you need to put out, i.e. Mm. this here book, um, mm. so that people can understand like, oh, maybe I need, oh, that also makes me go want to go back to when she's talking about um Asians in the film industry and I know we had a book talk not too long ago where we I had brought this up about how interior Chinatown which was the book that we started mm -hmm. off at the beginning of the year has been resonating in a lot of things that we've been mm -hmm. reading and in one part of her book she talks about how Hollywood is so is still so racist against Asians that when there's a rare Asian extra in a film I tense up for the the uh mm. the sea joke and relax when there isn't one and it made mm. me think about i'm a child of the 80s and the 90s um uh, but mainly for me the 80s and it made me think about all the different movies that you're brought up and you're like you gotta see this you know those if you have children you want them to sit down and watch these movies and i'm going and i made a little list and it's only four but i know that there are more and it Goonies. was like indiana jones <laughs> yep um a christmas story revenge of the nerds 16 mm -hmm. candles it made me really sit and think about like i know when christmas time came up I was like, oh, Denny, you got to watch A Christmas Story. And we're sitting there watching the movie. We mm. never finished it, which I'm partly thankful that we didn't finish it. <laughs> because I realized, I was like, wait a minute. The end of this movie is trash. We can't watch this movie. Because there's an end where their yeah. dinner gets eaten. They have to go to a Chinese restaurant. And there's a very racist thing that happens in the restaurant. And you're like, but this movie is something that I thought was a classic that does not hold up. You know, when you look back at wow. things and you're just like, oh, how did we say that this was the thing? This was the thing. This is not the thing. And you're hoping that later on, as we continue to go through life, that we can change those things 
and that that is no longer the case. But mm. I'm glad that she had mentioned that um, part, which um, I, I want to touch on the Malcolm X part. Oh, can, we, can I comment on that first? Yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, I remember feeling a lot of different feels when I watched A Christmas Story. My dad and I watched A Christmas Story like five times every fucking year during um, Christmas season. So that was my favorite Christmas movie. But I'm like, is it racist? Because that's definitely how they would sing this song. So is it like, I, I remember feeling so conflicted as a kid and like uncomfortable because something's going on here. I'm not really sure if it's okay. And same thing with like Indiana Jones. I'm like, I, I just remember like the kid, he'd be like, Dr. Jones, Dr. Jones. And like, that's like all I remember him saying. <laughs> and like, he did have other speaking parts, but I'm like, should I feel this way? Like, am I, is this okay? Like, it's just very confusing um, because this is probably how this kid talks. But then when you like now as an adult, I like step back and I'm like, okay, yeah, this, this is not okay for all these reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think, the other thing she said about uh, writers telling stories of in, in chapter two, she says, writers of color tell stories of racial trauma. Um, and for me, I was reading it as like, only as they are shaped by the white imagination. So you can only be successful in a story that you're writing if it fits the white imagination. So her quote, I should read it from the book because I have my notes and they might not be word for it. So her quote is that, In many Asian American novels, writers set trauma in a distant mother country or within an insular Asian family to ensure that their pain is not a reproof against American imperial geopolitics or domestic racism, the outlying forces that cause their pain. Asian patriarchal fathers, white people back then, are remote enough to allow everyone, including the reader, off the hook. And I was like, damn, that's such a good point. Like, whenever there's some kind of um, Asian American story, it's like, we can all feel good as Americans because the problem is always something that has to do with, like, this off, like, faraway land. Or it was like, white people before were so bad, but they're not anymore. So it's always, like, uh, making white pe- people feel comfortable because that audience needs to be generalizable. And the last thing I want to say about that whole thing, Veronica, is when the Oscars so white situation mm-hmm. came up, like what, in 2016, maybe 2017, mm-hmm. Chris Rock had, he was hosting and he had this moment in the Oscars where he, you know, he had been emphasizing and making jokes about how white the Oscars were. And really what he meant was Oscars aren't black enough because what he ended up doing is making this joke about um, their accountants and doing some like, you know, calculations. And these three Asian East Asian kids were on stage and they were the butt of the joke. Right. And I was like, you're fucking kidding me. So like at at a time where we're going to talk about race you're going to make Asian people feel less than. And mm-hmm. also I think there was another piece about like child labor in there too. And I'm like, you know, that's not cool. Like right. here we are 20, I think it was 2016 or 2017. And um, 
that really pissed me off. Mm -hmm. So it's like, even when we are talking about race and like trying to decenter whiteness, it's, it's a lot of times just let's make it more black. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. and that, that was like, man, we had such a, like uh, a moment here. Like this could have been so good for everybody. And maybe they could have mentioned how there's like no mention of Latinx um, folks that are getting awards and, there's even less representation of Latinos in film and um, uh, media than there is of Asians and um, definitely less than Blacks. So I'm like, wow, we could have really seized this moment, but no, it's tragic. (laughs) Thank you for saying what you just said, because that helps me segue into Malcolm X. So there is a section in the book towards the end where she's talking about the the, um, activist Yuri Kochiyama. Right. And her relationship with Malcolm X, which, you know, her her um, being presented to me probably didn't hit until maybe like I want to say maybe like five years ago where I saw this picture with her standing next to um, Malcolm X. And it always usually pops up during Black History time of like, you know, when you're talking about people being allies and 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 such and so she comes up as as someone that they speak about but this book opened her up more because i never i like i saw the picture i've seen it i've used it but it was one of those things where it did not come into how their relationship was formed and um what she had done um in a in alliance with um the black panther party um and and such uh as she was going about her life in the in the 70s and the 60s. And there is a part in the book where she talks about this infamous photo of Malcolm X Malcolm X being assassinated and you see her holding his head, right? His head is in her lap and she is the only face that you see in this picture. There are other people surrounded and their heads are cut off from the shot but it is her holding his head. Malcolm X, the Spike Lee movie, is my favorite Spike Lee movie of all time. Like, I can sit there and I can watch it over and over. And then the next one is Crooklyn. That's another one I love. But Malcolm X, in that particular scene, it made me, when reading this book, I went to Hulu, for those who want to know where you can watch this movie, it's on Hulu, and I went there, and I fast-forwarded all the way up into his assassination. So it's like a moment before he comes out on the stage, he's like in the back, he's being talked to, and then he comes out, and he's getting ready to talk, and then they have the whole moment he gets shot. And the camera is panning over the audience, and everybody is black. And he gets shot, and everybody starts running around, Either they're trying to get out of dangerous way or they're trying to chase down the people who have shot him. And the person that you see run up is uh, Angela Bassett's character who she plays uh, Betty Shabazz and she's the one holding his head. Mm. And uh, then he's rushed out. You don't see Yuri anywhere to be found. And so, you know, it made me think about what it is to talk about erasure of uh asian people in the media especially when you're talking about a book that's based in fact like you know a moment that's based in fact this is history this is a historic Mm -hmm. moment and you literally delete an entire person from out of this narrative Mm 
Mm-hmm. Knowing who Spike Lee is, knowing that he is an unapologetically black person, that his his um, movies will always be centered on blackness, mm-hmm. it isn't a surprise that mm-hmm. that is something that he would not have in the movie. But it is also a shame that he did not have that in the movie. And so, you know, what you said um, in regards to Chris Rock, uh, it really makes me think about, like, either you totally forget Asian people in in the narrative or you use them as a butt of a joke. And there is never a yeah. space that is being provided where you have to use them um, in a way, in a place where how they choose, how they want to be used, right? And it's not like how we want to use them. It's like us having to have this conversation of how would you like to be presented? You know, how do you want your story to be heard? And it really made me want to be like, somebody got to write a screenplay for her story alone. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, going and looking to see if there were other books, you know, I only found like maybe three. And um, I'm like, how is there not enough stuff on her? There should be a movie of just about her story alone. Mm-hmm. And then you think about all the other people who who have made um, movements such as hers um, necessary in this country should be highlighted on every day, you know, scale just like how we how we do with everything else. You know, mm-hmm. this country is seen as a very black and white one, and it, it is easy to dismiss everybody else. Um, and how is it that we can be able to bring everyone into this to this narrative where we can empower and unite, as she touched on in her chapter, united of like, really, look, let's 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 tear this system down. Right. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts, if, if any, on on that particular part of the book? I think you just summed it up so beautifully. Um, Yeah, just the invisibility and erasure that folks feel um, when you're not black or white (laughs) uh, in in movements. Um, Yuri Kochiyama and Grace Lee Boggs are probably the two biggest Asian activist names that I'll hear frequently. Um, But yeah, I, I think like you're we're both mentioning these like opportunistic moments where we could come together and work together as opposed to like dividing ourselves. Um, I think there's an, also an interesting moment in the movie get out and Jordan Peele decides to put, so it's only black, white, black, white, black, white, black, white the whole time. And then there's one Asian guy and he asks, he has one line and he says, is the African American experience an advantage or disadvantage? And it's like, why did you choose to put that in there? Like, it's it's an interesting question, like, to when we start to look at how Asians are used as a pawn or in relation to Black-white issues, as opposed to, like, just having their own experience, <laughs> which is why I'm so excited for, like, Minari, which I'm going to um, watch with my mom um, <laughs> very soon. Uh I, I'm really happy that we have the, like these kinds of movies coming out that are centering our experiences. Um, Parasite, even though it, it's not an Asian American story, but like more of these things where we can see ourselves as full people, as opposed to just like, how are you working in relation to, or who are you benefiting in this situation? Um, is it the black or the white 
group that you're benefiting with your actions or your questions or whatever it is. Um, but I'm really glad you brought up that whole, that whole section from the book. And I think it's just an issue that I would love more people to talk about and wrestle with. Um, yeah. Denny, do you have any thoughts to add to? Um, like representation is, you know, it's a constant struggle for Asian Americans and like y'all said erasure of like culture of identity is um not uncommon it's kind of like what what this country is known to do um and you know just not again generalizing all of like Asians it's kind of like us also just kind of like well you know it is what it is I guess this is this is this is how it is supposed to be you know it's so easy for asian people just to kind of like accept and just like okay well you know they found somebody else to play this role like scarlett johansson will play the lady from ghost like you know clearly that she that character is japanese Mm -hmm. so you know like little things like that where we easily like dismiss and i think sometimes it it hurts to me even more that we kind of like just accept it um, like the path of resistance is very hard because we it, we were not told to resist from the very beginning. Hmm. Um, so what Ginger was like, you know, um, alluding to like, oh, you know, the hope of like talking about more of kind of like this conversation, it's hard. It's painful. It's, it's like towards yourself, which Asian people don't like to do. Um, deliberately me you know like (laughs) even like talking about this book um I was scared I was terrified because I'm like oh shit I'm gonna like it's all my business in like the world you know the world wide web and second of all like you know starting the podcast like my English is I have an accent because I didn't grow up here so even just hearing myself talk like that's why I was telling Veronica before like I don't listen to our podcast because I'm like I'm I'm even that part, I'm like terrified of listening to myself because it highlights everything about me that I'm kind of like have an insecurity about. But I was like throughout like this this journey, I'm kind of like, well, fuck, girl, get over yourself. <laughs> like, like this is who you are, what you are, and like if they don't like how you sound, then go find another fucking podcast to listen to. But mm-hmm. it's you know those little things of like um, trying to trying to like decolonize your mind and trying to kind of like help kind of like help your Asianness out because we're 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 easily to kind of like we're we don't we try to assimilate very easily and we try to adapt very easily that we try to forget that we we can occupy a space and our presence is important and you know without Asian people in this country too I think this country would kind of like collapse and this mm. country would would not be this country without us. So th- those are those are my like two cents about <laughs> about all of this. But you know, like it's hard. It's also hard to talk about all of this these topics, um, especially when you know you're always told that you don't deserve that space to talk. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I think she's also talking about, um, so you mentioned like decolonizing your mind. And one of the things she mentions is 
the internment camps during World War II when yeah. Japanese were um, put in concentration camps. But at the same time, there were Japanese helping to free people in Dachau in uh, Europe. What, yeah. what country is Dachau in? Is it Poland? Is it? I don't remember. But um, but like we had like Japanese Americans fighting the war as Americans abroad while their Japanese American you know, counterparts in the United States were locked up in internment camps. Yeah. Like the irony is like mind blowing uh, of how the United States like uses people to their advantage, um, using them as soldiers to go do dirty work. Uh, but at the same time saying that they're not worthy enough to have their own freedom and to move about the country and their, their possessions should be taken and, um, I, I think also the dehumanization and that the military um, instills upon people, like it's so easy to dehumanize differently raced people when you grow up in this racist structure. Mm-hmm. So like highlighting when um, Asian Americans would go over to Vietnam, <laughs> again, like people would be like, oh, you're the same as me. And they're like, no, I'm going to kill you now yeah. because it's a war and I just, I really, I feel like the humanizing properties of, or the humanizing, the concept of dehumanization is prevalent throughout the book too. And like the different ways that we see that come out, even when we're talking about language and how like broken English or bad English, you're meant to feel less than, or people think less of you. Like so many different ways she talks about, um, the different ways that we other people and dehumanize folks, uh, particularly immigrants or people of color in the United States. Were there any other points that you all wanted to discuss in regards to the book that we might not have covered? I just don't know if I like, this is just me trying to, I don't know. I know ginger is Korean. Like how, like speaking of like the military, how like the United, the, the United States cut North and South Korea like separated them Mm -hmm. like we like they created that line and randomly like some random dudes that had no idea what they were doing like just like like drawing a line on a map like yeah like with no regard to family like with the with the people of the nation just kind of like randomly like separated the country and like those you separated like generations of family that haven't seen each other for a very long time and may would never be able to see each other Mm -hmm. and like you know just that really that really hurt me because how because knowing from from a country that that is like the philippines that's already separated and it's it's like it's so dehumanizing Mm -hmm. um that experience because like you just don't you just basically destroyed a country you just, with no regard, like we we are pawns. We are unimportant. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like so. Look, look, look that up. You know, for for anybody that care to to educate themselves and how that thing, just how that thing happened, and like people people had to like go to Busan for like shelter and to to feel that you know they're they're kind of protected because you know. There's a lot of other things happening within Korea 
not just like the war mm. so there's a lot a lot to say when you say like oh yeah you know i know there's north and south but it's it's a whole unpacking mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. other things mm-hmm. so just fyi so ginger do you have any closing thoughts that you like to share as well i guess I just want to highlight like that, again, that relationship between militarism, racism, and capitalism spread by imperialism. Her, her point about capitalism at the end being indebted and really trying to prove yourself through work. Um, I think I've been really, these past few years, trying to decouple my worth from my productivity. Mm. Um, And, you know, we were talking about this earlier in this conversation, but uh, the narrative around like wellness and self-care and all that has been real strong these last few years. But also I've been seeing like from nap ministry, for example, like not working is not only good for you, but a way of resistance Mm -hmm. because you as a person, you exist and you have value intrinsically without having to prove your worth and to produce for somebody else's capitalistic gain. Um, And I I just want to highlight that, you know, capitalism is founded on racism and the military has helped to create more capitalistic markets and so they all kind of work together. And, you know, racism comes from capitalism because racism is really an American concept that is born out of slavery. And so I, I think it's like all these concepts really tie in together and they are like weaved throughout the book in different stories that are very, again, accessible. And she highlights all sorts of things. Like she talks about Blade, um, talking about erasure and invisibility. I was like, oh, damn, like the sequel to Blade, I forget the name of it. I was like, wow, that's crazy. Like a whole world, everything's in like Japanese and there are yeah. no Asian people, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, so I don't know. I think we hit on like most of the big themes. Um, we didn't talk about Dicti or... Um, we didn't get into like that, that whole college experience so much because I think it kind of takes us down a different road. Mm-hmm. Um, but those were also very interesting chapters too. And I hope that if, if anybody is out there listening that, you know, between um, last year and this year and you're finding yourself buying all of these books on how to be anti-racist, um, that you're reading these books, that they're not just sitting off on the shelf. <laughs> on the shelf. And it's okay. If you haven't picked it up, there's grace. We give you grace. But please yeah. go pick it up and read it. Yeah, um, this this book is kind of like what? Like 200 pages. Like, oh, it's an read easy it. read. If you speed it up just a tad touch on Audible, it, it, you can finish it in five hours. Mm-hmm. And it's at a comfortable rate. So if, there's no excuse. Yeah, like, if you can watch sure. all the seasons of like the secret the housewives of whomever county, <laughs> you can read this book, okay? <laughs> like if if you can watch all the seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race, this doesn't take that long. There you go. You can finish it's it. It's true. Yeah, yeah. This is a great read and it's it's accessible, it's easy. Yeah, I recommend it for sure. Thank you so much for letting me talk about it. I love it so much. I'm so happy to talk about it with critical people. So this has been so fun for me. Well, thank you. It's always been thank a joy you. to have you on the show. And um, we just want to big up because the last time you were on here, 
Um, you had your Squeeze and Lemons podcast, but now you have what's the name of it? Say it for the people. It's called Sipping Tea with Dr. G. <laughs> yeah. See how cute that is? It's so cute. It's so yes. Cute. So we just retired uh, Squeeze and Lemons because um, my co-host and I, we both got new pods. My co-host, Jason, he's got two new pods, one with his family. It's called um, Retro Recap, and they, they talk about, like, old school stuff to their kids, oh. which is kind of cute. And then uh, he's got a pod called Hip Pod Heads, um, and they talk about hip hop. And I have my new pod, Sippin' Tea with Dr. G, and you can find it on all platforms. But uh, mine is kind of like an extension of Squeezing Lemons, and Squeezing Lemons is still up. So, you know, you can go back to those old conversations about, like, Beyonce and stuff. Um, <laughs> <Of> but <course. laughs> the only difference between Squeezing Lemons and Sippin' Tea is more like I want to talk more about um, uh, dating, because I didn't really talk about dating too much on my old pods, but it's still a lot about identity. It's relationships, identity, and society. So these kinds of conversations will always be on there. Um, yeah, I've got some real interesting stuff coming up. So I'm excited. So thanks for letting me shout that out. Awesome. Well, I, I've already started listening to it and I absolutely love it. So I can't wait to see what else you got coming out. I know your first episodes deals with dating i know you have a, a mother's day episode and, mm -hmm. you know the world Moms. is your oyster girl go ahead and get that pearl okay we always learn something when ginger comes to the show so i hope this would not be her last and she would continue to come to our show and talk about all these books I think it it also it also kind of like inspired us to do like more nonfiction work. So I'm like, well, it's mm. really interesting to talk about nonfiction. So thank you. So thank yeah, you for we're, all yeah. That. we're on the nonfiction uh, train. Um, we got a new one that's coming out that we're going to be reading uh, for the next two months. We're not going to announce it yet because it is not uh, June. And we're still in mm. the middle of May, so it's going to be a surprise. So um, make sure you all tune in on June 1st to find out what book uh, that we are going to be talking about. Mm. But until then, we bid the you all adieu. The suspense is killing me! <laughs> anytime, anytime. <laughs> so um, we're going to let you go. And uh, you have a good rest of your, your evening and weekend. Yeah, thanks for having me, gang. I can't wait to uh, see you again. Yeah, anytime. This is a fun collab. I appreciate awesome. it. All right, well, you take care. We'll see you later. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our show. Follow us on Instagram at Vulgar Geniuses Book Club. Our theme song was produced by Sean Kantrowitz. Follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Sean Dammit. That's spelled S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. See you next time. Deuces.